Well, ready for some announcements, you guys? Yeah, I made it the longest awkward pause ever, just because mine's well, right? Um, Dave, it is good to see you. Welcome. Ah, yeah, I can see your smile through your mask. <laughs> we don't normally give shout outs, but on a morning like today when my brain is running a million miles an hour, I might just call out anyone because anything I'm thinking is coming out of my mouth. Hi, Rick and Chris. <laughs> Okay, I got this. We are focusing on announcements. I have things to tell you about. Um, first of all, with Cedar Way and Vision House, it is our time, um, I was gonna say of the month, but that's just, oh, that doesn't sound good. Um, so it's that time again to donate to Vision House and Cedar Way. I don't know how to get myself out of this. Um, Okay, items that are needed. It's, it's not this coming Tuesday, but the next one, the 16th. And so um, we have a list of items that you can sign up for. It's a digital sign up through signup.com. And the way that you can get access to that list, if you are part of, you've said, hey, I'd, I'd like to know about needs with Vision House and Cedar Way, you're probably already on our email distribution list and you might need to check your email inbox. Um, if you're on our text alert, we pushed that through you through our text alert to you as well. And if you're like, I didn't hear anything, sign up again. And the way that you can sign up for that is right here. Um, you can text vision to the Brookview number, and that'll give you an automatic link, or Cedar Way to that number, and you'll get an automatic link. Or you can fill out your online communication card, and there are boxes for Vision Way and Cedar Way. A vision Way, Cedar Way, House, Home, I... Can I quit? <laughs> okay, um, it's not, it's, okay. Um, but here are some of the things that we're needing. Fresh produce is what we typically bring to Cedar Way, to the pop-up pantry there. Um, and that's potatoes, carrots, onions, bananas, and then we throw in oatmeal and toilet paper as well. And then for Vision House, they have some urgent need items. And so those things are diaper wipes, Afro hair care products with shampoo and conditioner, some bar soap, um, dishwashing detergent, so Dawn, like dish soap, you don't have to do that brand, but like that. Um, and then laundry pods as well for the high efficiency washers, those little, little guys there. So if you are able to grab any of those things, we would just be so thankful and grateful for that. And the way that you drop those off is either here on the side building, and we check that during the week, and we move those items over to our building next door so that they're safe. Or if you are coming to church in person, you can drop those off in the foyer here, um, right on your way into church. It's in the lobby. So um, again, thank you for your partnership in that and the way that you are just loving people really well through those donations. Um, some of you might have gotten an email if you are in life groups or you follow us on our Brookview Facebook page. And we're trying to wrap our brains around what Easter might look like. Um, we're trying to figure out how many people would want to come to an in-person service, how many people will be get, bringing kids with them. It is our hope and desire to, we will likely have two services. Um, and so we're just kind of polling you to see 
will you will you plan on coming? Are you planning on coming? Are you unsure? Um, do you prefer a nine o'clock or an eleven o'clock service? If we do need to go to both um, two separate services, and then we would so like to see if we could staff a kids program for that one week. That doesn't mean we're launching kids programs from here forward, but just for that morning, for it to look a little bit more like church for kids in the traditional way that we've always done things. And so we would like to be able to plan for your children as well. And so if you wouldn't mind taking a minute to fill out that online survey, you just go to brookviewchurch.com forward slash Easter, and there is a link to that survey. And so we're going to make a decision on that in the next couple of weeks for sure by March 21st so that you and your family know how to plan. Um, We want everyone who wants to be at church in person on Easter to be able to do that. So please, we have a generous, gracious community that says, hey, I'll just be at home so that others can. Um, We would like to celebrate that together. And Jason and I are prepared to do that all day if we have to, because we want to see you. And Easter in our faith is so, so special. It is the day that we celebrate that Jesus did what he said he was going to do, and on the third day he rose, and that is our hope, and we just want to be together to celebrate that together. So um, then the next thing that we have coming up is um, in preparation of Easter, and just because it's springtime and things are dirty around here, we're hoping to have a spring clean. And anyone, everyone is invited to that. Kids can come if they want. We have some inside housekeeping, deep cleaning items that we're hoping to do, like dusting and scrubbing toilets and hard surfaces, just like getting it looking good around here. Um, We also have outdoor work that we're hoping to do, mowing, edging, weeding, putting fresh bark in the flower beds, that kind of stuff. And so we're going to do that the Saturday before Easter, which falls on March 27th um, from 10 to noon. We'll be um, providing a lunch for those that are here. You can come for 40 minutes. You can come for the whole four hours, whatever happens to work for you. It's going to be self-directed working. And so you'll essentially show up. There will be some whiteboards with some tasks that need to be done, cleaning supplies for you. Maybe you have supplies that you like that you can bring with you, um, though you don't need to do that. And then you'll just kind of look and go, okay, I'll take that until those things are done or until we hit two o'clock in the afternoon. And so lunch can be done outside um, in a socially distant way that you feel really comfortable with. You could go to your car because you're not comfortable having a mask down and eating. It's really whatever works for you, but we'll have some round tables set up downstairs and you can sit around those to enjoy lunch um, in a socially distant manner as well. So that's our hope. That's our desire for spring clean. And I just, I'm excited to have it smelling and looking good around here. So I just want to thank you in advance for your willingness to do that. Um, As we have talked, um, Jason and I have been visiting life groups over the last few weeks, and we might be coming into your group. But we realize that there are many people that didn't realize that we have an online communication card, Um, which means maybe they're fast forwarding through my announcements. Gah. I mean, you miss a train wreck every week. Um, but 
we just want you to fill that out. If there are ways that you want to communicate with us, you simply go to brookviewchurch.com. You click on the contact tab, and then right the first thing you'll see is filling out that online communication card. So we'd love to hear from you if you have questions or there are things that you want to respond to this morning. And then the very last thing, as the world is opening up a bit and more people are feeling like, hey, I think I'd like to try church in person, we would so love to have you here. Um, and we just would love for you to please, pretty please, fill out an RSVP online for coming into church. That helps us to know when we're close to our capacity and what we need to do to keep everybody safe um, and just to, to gather in a respectful way together. So that's super helpful. And I just want to say thank you to those of you that are RSVPing for church in person. That's really, really helpful for us. And so if you haven't come to church yet and you're feeling like, well, I probably shouldn't go because there's lots of people there and now I'm an outsider and I'm not on the inside, Stop it. Come here. We will not hug you. I will give you a shout out like I did to Dave Bendemeer, but other than that, it's pretty painless. Um, okay, that's all that I got. I did it. Well, here we go. Today we're going to start a four-week series that's going to lead us up to Easter, and I'm calling it The Pursuit of Happiness, because we all want to be happy, right? And so to launch us into this, um, I, I actually want to be very transparent, and um, I want to give you guys a little bit of my story that I've never shared, and I'm, I'm serious about this. Some of you have come to Brookview since like 2003, and um, for whatever reason, I, I'm not hiding this, I'm not ashamed of it or anything, uh, I've just never really talked about this part of my life from the stage before, and I feel compelled to kind of start this series with it because I think it's going to help launch us into where we're going, but here's, here's, here it is. Um, when I was 10 years old, my, my mom and uh, stepdad got divorced. My mom left my stepdad. And from that point on, it was just my mom and I. Didn't have any siblings, just the two of us. And when that happened, something fundamentally shifted in our relationship. And it shifted from sort of a, a natural parent-child kind of relationship to almost being peers. She was like hungry for a friend. And so we became buddies. She didn't have a spouse to talk to about life, and so she talked to me, and she would talk to me about everything. She talked to me about the guys she was dating. She would talk to me about all the things in her life that were stressing her out, all of her fears, all of it. And I was kind of suddenly thrust into this 
adult world. And so I had to kind of grow up a little bit, which was not all bad. Um, but also, I was trying to process realities that I didn't really have the maturity for. Like she would talk to me about how we couldn't pay the bills and we might end up not having anywhere to live. Um, she would talk to me about relationships with men that she was having. She would talk about that sexual part of it. She would talk to me about her darkest fears. Um, she was a deeply transparent woman uh, and really almost had no filter. Okay, so after this morning's announcements, some of you might be thinking, it's true. Like, the, you have married your mother. Um, and I assure you that I did not marry my mother. There are great differences. But okay, my mom had like no filter. And again, in some ways that was good. Like, um, I, I tend to be pretty transparent myself, and I, I think that a lot of that actually came from my mom. Um, but it's, it's just sort of what I knew. But my mom also had bipolar disorder, and it was pretty severe. So she could go into these raging manic episodes, talking a thousand miles an hour and spending money like crazy that we didn't have and making dreams and plans that, that really were not in touch with reality. Or she might like crash in a fit of depression that would last for weeks, sometimes even months. She might go a week or two and not get out of bed, not shower. And during those kind of downtimes, she would become suicidal. And so she would need to stay in mental hospitals for stretches. And so all through my teens, she would be gone for days or a week at a time, and she would be at the hospital on suicide watch. And then she would get her meds regulated and kind of work through it all, and then she'd come home. But as transparent as she was, she didn't hide any of that, and so I knew about all of it. Now, I got to be like 15, 16 years old, and at that point, when she would be gone, I would just stay by myself. We had a condo, and I would just be there. No accountability, no supervision. Mom was in the hospital again, and I was in this group of friends in high school that started to go nuts with alcohol. So this partying thing got like uh, very real for me. A, a lot of drinking and a lot of parties where boys and girls were kind of messing around, and this is just the way it was. This was my life. It was sports and, and parties. Now, I don't want to paint a, like, my mom loved me dearly, and I knew it. Like, she was at every game. She was, she was my biggest fan. She believed in me. Um, she adored me, like, and, and I felt that. Like, I was her world. In fact, at times it felt like I was maybe her only reason for, for living. And so I, I was loved, and I was supported, in fact, far, far more than most. I truly was, and I feel, I feel fortunate. But sometimes she would, like, come home late and, from something, and we didn't have cell phones back then, right? And so I, I would start thinking, there was no way to get a hold of her, and I would just start thinking, like, she finally did it. Like, she drove off a cliff. Like, I'm on my own. 
And then eventually she would walk through the door and it would be like, okay. Now, as a 15, 16-year-old, and I think many of you know all about this, I, I felt a lot of pressure just to be successful. Um, I, I, for me, I wanted to be a star athlete. I, I wanted to be popular. I wanted to look impressive and make people say, wow. And that desire led to all kinds of fear and anxiety, like, what if I'm not good enough? What if I fail? What if, what if people aren't impressed by me? What if, what if they don't like me? What if I don't turn out to be anything? And that, in combo with all of the talk around my house about suicide, it had an effect. And so all through high school, and for me in my darker moments, I had very high levels of what they call suicidal ideation, which means I thought about it a lot. And so I would dream of different ways to do it and fantasize about how people might react when I was gone. And so one night, we were at kind of our usual party spot, and what we would do is go down to the beach and then walk down the train tracks, and we would find some remote area along the tracks, and we would, you know, we would party. And then when a train came, we'd all get out of the way. Well, one night, um, there, it, was, it was getting pretty wild, and... Um, everybody had kind of gone over the top, and I, I heard the train coming, and I quietly snuck off with the idea, I'm not getting out of the way. And um, we all had too much influence and um, liquid influence, and so it's actually really miraculous. But just in time, one of my friends noticed that I wasn't there and had the sense that something was really off, And a whole team of my friends came and saved my life. Now, one of those kids was a Christian kid from a Christian family. And his mom was a young life leader, and he was like super, super, uh, you know, he was a young life guy who at that point was teetering with what his life was going to be about. But he went home that night, and he told his mom about that right away at like 2 o'clock in the morning. And it scared him to death. And it just sort of woke him up. And he got real serious about his faith. He got real serious about bringing me to faith, and the, unfortunately, I couldn't have possibly been more resistant. I had no interest in Christianity. I had no interest in Jesus. I had no interest in religion or any of it. I just wasn't having it. I was as closed off to all of it as, as you can be, but my friend and his small group, his campaigners group with Young Life, guys from high school, they started praying for me, and they were like relentless. Um, and so for three years, they just prayed for me. They prayed and prayed that God would, would somehow reach out to me. And then we all graduated, and their Bible study thing ended, and we all went our separate ways. And about 18 months later, like after that, after we all graduated, God broke through, and he reached me. And I'll tell you something, you guys, God has done the most amazing thing. Because for me now, it's been, it's been 28 years of walking with Jesus, and God has done something. Like, he has, he has filled my life with joy, and he has filled it with, with peace. And, and I think, you know, we look at that, and we go, well, of course. I mean, that's, that's to be expected, right? I mean, following Jesus is supposed to lead to joy. It's supposed to lead to peace. Jesus promised that it would. And I'm just, I'm here to tell you, I'm here to testify, as they say in some churches, amen, that for me, this has actually worked out. 
This, is, this has been my reality. Jesus took a scared, depressed, suicidal kid And he, he really has filled that kid with life and joy and peace. Now, it doesn't mean that I only feel joy ever. The only person in the world that I know of that's like that is, is Bob. <laughs> and I, I don't want to pretend that I'm competing with Bob Crozier for the most joyful person in Briar. I'm not. There's hard stuff in life, and, and there's stuff to grieve and be sad about and be nervous about and all of that, and that's, that's all real. But I have really walked through some tough stuff over the years and yet still experienced, while simultaneously being sad, there's also this presence of joy and peace and hope, and it has carried me. So, so part of the gospel, part of the good news of Jesus, a big part of it is this inextinguishable joy that can actually come to us. And so here's what I want to do over the next four weeks. Like leading up to Easter, I want us to ask the question, how does this work? How, how does following Jesus actually lead us to joy? Because I think we all want to be happy. So, so how, how does this work? And of course, we could spend years on this and barely mind the topic, and we're only going to spend four weeks on this. But we're going to dive into a book in the Bible that is all about joy. It's the book of Philippians, which is just one of my favorites. And the thread woven all throughout the book is joy, joy in the midst of really hard stuff that's going on. And so this entire series is going to be rooted in Philippians. And, and so be, like, as we dive into this, I want to show you guys something. Some of you know that I'm, I'm falling in love with a resource that helps people engage the Bible. And it's called the Bible Project. And there are these videos that explain Scripture. Um, and there is one for every single book in the Bible. So if you're reading through the Bible and you come across a book and you're like, what's going on here? I don't understand this. You can go to YouTube and you, you just keyword in the Bible project and the particular book of the Bible that you're wanting to look at, and it'll give you a video giving you the background information and kind of the main ideas for the whole thing. As well as there's tons of other stuff. You go to bibleproject.com, there's stuff like on creation and angels and demons and, and Satan and where did that come from and all kinds of stuff, love and joy, okay? What I want to do this morning is just show you guys the one for Philippians and just sort of set the tone for, for where we're going to be over the next few weeks. So this is about, it's about eight minutes long. It moves fast. There's a lot of content. So fasten your seatbelt. Here we go. Paul's letter to the Philippians. The church in Philippi was the first Jesus community Paul started in Eastern Europe. And that story is told in Acts chapter 16. Philippi was a Roman colony in ancient Macedonia. It was full of retired soldiers and it was known for its patriotic nationalism. And so there Paul faced resistance when he was announcing Jesus as the true king of the world. And after Paul moved on from there, those who became followers of Jesus continued to suffer resistance and even persecution. But they remained a vibrant community faithful to the way of Jesus. 
Paul sent this letter from one of his many imprisonments, and for a very practical reason. The Philippians had sent one of their members, Epaphroditus, to take a financial gift to Paul to support him in prison. And Paul sent back this letter with Epaphroditus to say thank you and to do a whole lot more. The design of this letter doesn't develop one single idea from beginning to end like many of Paul's other letters. Rather, Paul has arranged a series of short, reflective essays or vignettes, and they all revolve around the center of gravity in this letter, which is a poem in chapter 2. It artistically retells the story of the Messiah's incarnation, his life, death, and resurrection, and exaltation. And then in each of these vignettes, Paul will take up key words or ideas from that poem to show how living as a Christian means seeing your own story as a lived expression of Jesus' story. So Paul opens the letter with a prayer of gratefulness, and he thanks God for the Philippians' generosity, for their faithfulness, and he expresses his confidence that the life-transforming work that God has begun in them will continue into greater and more beautiful expressions of faithfulness and love. And Paul then focuses on their obvious concern at the moment, which is his status in prison. Being in a Roman prison was no picnic, but it paradoxically has turned out for good to advance the good news about Jesus. So all of the Roman guards, the administrators, they all know that Paul's in prison for announcing Jesus as the risen Lord. And his imprisonment, it's inspired confidence in other Christians to talk about Jesus more openly. And Paul's optimistic that he will be released from prison, but it's possible that he could be executed. And as he reflects on it, that actually wouldn't be so bad because for me, Paul says, life is the Messiah. And so dying would be a gain. For Paul, his life in the present and in the future, it's defined by the life and love of Jesus for him. And so if he's executed, that means he'll be present with Jesus, which would be great for him. And if he's released, well, that would mean he could keep working to start more Jesus communities, which would be better for other people. And so that's what he hopes for. And notice how his train of thought works here. Dying for Jesus is not the true sacrifice for Paul. Rather, it's staying alive to serve others. And so that's Paul's way of participating in the story of Jesus, to suffer in order to love others more than himself. Paul then turns to the Philippians and he urges them to participate in Jesus' example by taking up this same mindset. He says, your life as citizens should be consistent with the good news about the Messiah. So these Christians in Philippi, they were living in a hotbed of Roman patriotism, but their way of life was to be shaped by another king, Jesus. And that might bring persecution, but they are not to be afraid because suffering for being associated with Jesus, it's a way of living out the story of Jesus himself. Which leads Paul into the great poem of chapter 2. It's rich with echoes of Old Testament texts, specifically the story of Adam and his rebellion in Genesis 1-3, through and the poems about the suffering servant in the book of Isaiah. This poem is worth committing to memory. It is a beautifully condensed version of the gospel story. So before becoming human, the Messiah pre-existed in a state of glory and equality with God. And unlike Adam, who tried to seize equality with God, the Messiah chose not to exploit his equal status for his self-advantage. Rather, he emptied himself of status. He became a human. He became a servant to all. And even more than that, he allowed himself to be humiliated. He was obedient to the Father by going to his death on a Roman execution rack. 
But through God's power and grace, the Messiah's shameful death has been reversed through the resurrection. And now God has highly exalted Jesus as the King of all, bestowing upon him the name that is above all names, so that all creation should recognize that Jesus the Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now that last statement is astounding. Paul's quoting from Isaiah chapter 45. It's a passage where all creation comes to recognize the God of Israel as Lord. Paul's point here is very clear. In the crucified and risen Jesus, we discover that the one true God of Israel consists of God the Father and the Lord Jesus. And so for Paul, this poem, it expresses his convictions about who Jesus is and it does more. It offers the example of Jesus as a way of life that his followers are to imitate. And so that's why Paul immediately goes on to tell two stories, first about Timothy, then about Epaphroditus, because they are both examples of people living out Jesus' story. So Timothy's like Jesus because he's constantly concerned for the well-being of other people more than his own. And Epaphroditus, who the Philippians sent with their gift, he ended up risking his life to serve Paul in prison. He got so sick he almost died trying to help Paul. But God had mercy on him and Paul by sparing him the loss of a friend. Paul's point here is that these are the kinds of people who are living, breathing examples of the story of Jesus and they are worthy of imitation. Paul then turns to his own story as an example. So those Christians who had been demanding circumcision of non-Jewish Christians, remember his letter to the Galatians, these people are still stirring up trouble for Paul and they keep reminding him of his own past. When he used to persecute Jesus' followers, when he tried to show his right standing before God by his zealous obedience to the laws of the Torah. But like Jesus, Paul has given up all of that status and privilege. He now regards all of it as filth. And the word he uses is actually much less polite. He's given it all up to become a servant, like Jesus, to participate in his suffering and sacrificial love. And he does all of it in the hope that Jesus' love will carry him through death and out the other side into resurrection. So Paul says that for followers of Jesus, their true citizenship is in heaven, which for Paul does not mean that we should all hope to get away from earth and go to heaven one day. Rather, heaven is the transcendent place where Jesus reigns as king. And he says we're eagerly awaiting our royal savior to come from there and return here to bring his kingdom of healing justice and transforming love to bring about a new creation. Paul then challenges the Philippians to keep living out the Jesus story. He first addresses two prominent women leaders in the church who worked alongside Paul, and they're in some kind of conflict. And so Paul pleads with them to follow Jesus' example of humility, to reconcile and become unified. Paul then urges the Philippians not to give in to fear, but despite their persecution, to vent all of their emotion and their needs to God, who will give them peace. And that peace, Paul says, it comes by focusing your thoughts on what is good and true and lovely. There's always something that you could complain about, but a follower of Jesus knows that all of life is a gift and can choose to see beauty and grace in any life circumstance. Which leads Paul to his conclusion. He again thanks the Philippians for their sacrificial gift, and he wants them to know that his imprisonments, that his times of poverty, that these are not true hardships for him. They've actually become his his greatest teachers, showing him that no matter his circumstances, he has learned the secret of contentment, its simple dependence on the one who strengthens him. 
Paul has come to see his own suffering as a participation in the story of Jesus. The letter to the Philippians gives us a unique window into Paul's own heart and mind. He saw his entire life as a reenactment of the story of Jesus. And you can sense in this letter his close connection to Jesus, his awareness that Jesus' love and presence is closer than his own skin. And that's what gave him hope and humility in his darkest hours. And so Paul shows us that knowing Jesus is always a deeply personal, transforming encounter. That's the kind of Jesus that Paul invites others to follow. And that's what Paul's letter to the Philippians is all about. You got that? I'd like to ask you to picture something in your mind. I want you to think about the happiest, most joyful person you know. Not Bob, I already took Bob. <laughs> think about the happiest, most joyful person you know. I want to give you a second, like, I mean, like, visualize them. And I don't mean somebody that's like plasticky, you know, fake, just pretending all the time, not that. I mean somebody that's like authentically joyful. They're in general very grateful in their life. They, they have a lot of optimism about the future. And when you're around them, they just breathe life and energy into you. Here's my question. Who wouldn't want to spend more time with that person? Okay, now alternative, alternatively, I, I want you to picture the most unhappy, most joy-challenged person you know. Get them in your mind. Don't look at them right now. <laughs> but think of somebody that's, that's, that's negative, and they're, they're kind of bitter, kind of a complainer, someone that only seems to laugh at other people's expense, someone that always kind of plays the role of the martyr. Now think about that person, and here's my question. How much do you dread spending time with that person? Final question, which kind of person are you? We live in a society where joy is becoming harder and harder to find. Mental health experts say that depression is about 10 times more common in our day than it was in the 1960s. Even though we're a lot richer and better educated, we're just richer, smarter, sad people. They also tell us that the average onset for depression in 1960 was 29 and a half years old. You guys, today it is 14 and a half. And when you think about that, there is something terribly wrong. We, we live in a world where lasting joy is becoming more and more and more elusive. People can't figure out, how do I, how do I get it and how do I keep it? Happiness is being studied a lot by social science and written about more, more than ever by far. But for the Apostle Paul, okay, joy came out of knowing Jesus. Uh, in Philippians, the, the word joy or words that are associated with it, like rejoice or rejoicing, are actually used 14 times in this like two-page letter. And yet what's ironic is when you think about it, Paul wrote that letter from prison. He was in chains. He was suffering. And yet, he can't stop talking about joy. 
So we're going to spend four weeks looking at this little book. And today I want us to start at the very beginning. And so here we go. And I want to say, would you please stand? We're going to read, we're going to read scripture together. This is Philippians 1, starting with verse 1. And Paul starts this way. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. All right, you can be seated. What a, what a remarkable introduction to a letter. I mean, this is just going to be a remarkable letter. And there's a surprising truth about the joyful life that, that really is kind of hidden in the very first line. Um, here's how letters worked in the ancient world. Generally, letters began with a very simple formula. Kind of like in our day, we usually start a letter by saying, Dear, you know, so-and-so, right? In the ancient world, they would start uh, with not dear so-and-so. You know what's weird about writing letters in our day and age? What's the first thing you do when you get a letter? You, you look at the end of it to see who wrote it. And then you come back to the beginning, right? They, I think they had something figured out. So in the ancient world... When they would start a letter, they would always start from X to Y to whoever, whoever was being written to, and then there would be some greetings. Now, when Paul wrote, he most often included a little title that belonged to him. Like he wrote to many churches or many individuals, and he, he usually started with a title, uh, like to the church at Ephesus. He begins with this. This is Ephesians 1.1. 1, 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Or to Timothy, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Or to Corinth, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. In this letter, in, to Philippi, he uses a very different title to describe himself. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Not apostle, not one with authority, but servant to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Now, why in this particular letter would Paul introduce himself as a servant? Well, it turns out that Philippi was a very elite community. Like, it was a colony of the Roman Empire, and historians say that Rome was, like, Rome was the most status-conscious, like, status-obsessed society in the ancient world. And Philippi may have been the most status-conscious community in the empire. It was built on what they called the pursuit of honor, which sounds awesome. It's just a glorified way of saying self-advancement. And in Philippi, see, the way to be happy, this was the way you'd be happy. You climbed the ladder. 
And so Paul starts his letter to the Philippians by using a title that nobody in the Roman Empire would have ever used to describe themselves. He says, hi, it's me, Paul, the servant. And he literally there uses the word for slave. He says, hi, it's me, Paul, the slave. And he goes as far down the ladder as you can go. He says, you know what? I am not the master of a pleasant life or the ruler of a successful life. Here's what I am. I am the servant of a great king and a great cause. And this is, this is what brings us to what, what I think we might call the happiness paradox. And this is going to be at the core of everything that we talk about throughout this series. Here's the paradox. I will never be happy if the ultimate goal of my life is to be happy. Happiness is one of those things that comes to us only as a byproduct when we're actually pursuing something else. There is, it turns out, something that's even better than the happy life, and it's, it's what we might call the meaningful life. And you guys, there is a huge difference between the pursuit of happy and the pursuit of meaning. And there's all kinds of research around this now. And it turns out that happiness without meaning actually becomes very shallow and very self-centered. And that's why it's so elusive. That's why it's so fragile. We think, I I can be happy if I can avoid pain and if everybody likes me. I can be happy if I get what I want. I can be happy if things go well. And so what I do then is I put the state of my happiness, I hang it upon my circumstances, right? People don't have a job, and they think, you know what? I'll be happy when I get a job. And then they get a job. And there's all this pressure and stress and coworkers and a, like a boss. And so eventually people think, you know what? I will be so happy when I can finally retire, I'll be happy when I'm done with my job. It's really interesting. There are studies on this stuff. When, when people retire, and this is really common, what often happens, not always true, but what, what often happens is that happiness, okay, happy goes up temporarily, but underneath that, meaning goes down because they, they don't find any place to contribute. You, you think about the way vacations often work. People dream and dream and dream, and they wait and wait and wait for the vacation, and then it happens. And if they make the thing too long, you know, 12 days in Cabo, by the end of it, they're going stir-crazy. Why? Because after a while, meaning is just lost, and it goes down. Sometimes when people come into a large chunk of money, And they decide they're going to just spend it all on themselves. New car, bigger house, nicer stuff. And again, happiness goes up for a moment, but meaning goes way down. Now, here's something that a lot of people want that is, when you think about it, it's weird. It's really confusing. Here's what a lot of people think. I'd be happier if I had some kids. Do you know anybody with kids? I would be happy if I could just get kids in the house. Now, that's interesting because do kids make life easier? 
There are people that are foolish enough to think that it will. They sort of think, you know, parenting will just be this endless series of magic moments, these chubby little arms to squeeze me all the time. Someone that's always there to love me and respect me and always do what I say. <laughs> right? And then babies come, and it turns out it's, it's actually not all magic moments. There's dirty diapers, right? And there's bottles in the middle of the night, and there is sleep deprivation, and there's exhaustion. And you guys, you spend at least a year smelling like puke, right? I, I mean, having children turns out to be expensive. It's costly. It's exhausting. It's draining. And you guys, I, you can't deny it. It's gross, and so when it comes to happy, this is the interesting thing. What we see is the inverse. When, when kids come into the house, what happens? Happiness goes down. So why in the world do so many people do it? Because while happy may go down for a season, meaning goes way, way up. See, like being mom or dad to somebody, it turns out to be, like, meaningful. And when you get to the end of your life, what you realize is it's meaning that matters the most. It is meaning. And so here's the point of what I'm saying, and this is a big, big deal. God has wired us so that we will only grow in sustainable joy when there's increased meaning in our life. In other words... Okay, if you aim at meaning, you tend to get happy thrown in. If you aim at happy, you'll get neither happy nor meaning. So if we want to be individuals and we want to become a community that's filled with joy, then we need to pursue something that is better than the happy life, and that's the meaningful life. So for the rest of this message... I just want to share two very simple observations about a meaningful life and how it actually leads to joy. And here's the first one. The first is, suffering can interrupt the happy life. Suffering will interrupt the happy life. But suffering is powerless to stop the meaningful life. See, if you pursue happy, then you need your circumstances to be just right. But if you pursue meaning, you can find it even when the circumstances of your life are not what you want them to be. And we see this in a big-time way with the Apostle Paul. Um, a few years ago, I mean, like, you think about it, he's writing from prison, right? And all he wants to talk about is joy. Um, a few years ago, Jen and I attended a funeral for an old friend named Mike. Um, he had been the worship leader for like at our church in Bellingham, and he was someone that Jen and I just adored and respected, just a great man. And um, Mike died in his 50s after a long battle with cancer. And we hadn't seen him for years, but we went up for the memorial service. And it was unbelievable how many people came up and talked about Mike and basically said the same thing. The theme of the day with Mike was his unbelievable, like, unstoppable joy. The way that no matter what else was going on with him, he never stopped loving and serving people. 
He had this kindness and this smile in spite of his terminal illness. Now, I think that we've all seen somebody like that. We've all seen somebody that we respect. And you see, it might not be a terminal cancer, but you watch them going through hell. You watch them going through hell, and you see that there is still joy. Why? Because suffering is powerless to stop the meaningful life. It's interesting, you know, whenever we go to Haiti with teams, we've been going to Haiti since, what, 2008? Then whenever we go to Haiti with teams, people, it's, it's like every time, people are always surprised. For most people, the, the level in, uh, of suffering in that country, and they have a vision of what, how much suffering there's going to be, and then they get there and they go, like, wow, it's worse. And it exceeds their expectations. People are living in trash, and they have no jobs, and they have very little hope of anything being different. And yet somehow, even in the midst of all of that, there's joy. They laugh, and they smile, and they joke. And most people are just like, what's happening? Right? Because what we do is we project their situation onto ourselves, and we think, if I had to live like that, I would be inconsolably depressed. How in the world are these people so filled with joy? But I'll just, I'll tell you what I think it boils down to. Suffering is powerless to stop the meaningful life. And they may be in poverty and they may be suffering, but guess what? They still have people they love. They still have kids and friends and family, and they still have enterprises that they're involved in that they're excited about. They still have community. They still bring smiles to each other's faces. They know what it is to serve. They know what it is to give. Their lives aren't any less meaningful than yours and mine, actually. And it's amazing how the pursuit of meaning leads to joy. See, suffering can interrupt happy but it is powerless to stop meaning. And, and that leads to one final observation. Meaning comes, it comes best when I invest deeply in people. Like what matters to God and what matters more than anything else in life is people. And people mattered to Paul. You think about the passion in his words to the Philippians. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Guys, mostly life is about relationships. Nobody has unhappy relationships and then a joy-filled life. And nobody has joy-filled, meaningful relationships and then a joyless life. It is all about relationships. Meaning comes most when I invest deeply in people. And um, I want to tell you about a season in my life where this just became super real to me. I've, I talked about this years ago, but a few months after Jen and I got married, we decided to start a church. This church. Um, and we lived up in Bellingham, and we said, okay, we're, we're going to go down to the Linwood area one day, and we're going to start a church. And we dreamed about it, and we worked for three years to get ourselves prepared to do it. 
because I was a brand new Christian, and it was like, I should probably know something about the Bible. <laughs> and so after I got my psych degree, my undergraduate degree at Western, I went to grad school, and I got a master's in like theology and Bible and church leadership. And Jen and I served in our church in Bellingham as much as they would possibly allow. They were like, go home. You know, I, I did a really long internship, and Jen uh, worked full-time in the church office and sort of gained experiences with, experience with the inner workings of a church. Um, and we were just like, we were just like sponges, just like soak, you know, soaking all of it up, just learning. Thank you for that, Brooklyn. <laughs> you weren't even a thought at the time, but I'm so glad you're here because you bring me meaning. Okay, so, but after three years, it was time to, to make the move and do this thing, right? And so we had about two months until we pulled the trigger on it. We, it, we kind of had it all lined up. We just needed to secure the funding. Um, and, we, and I had a beat on that. So I was like, this is, and so for two months, I just needed some temporary income. I was done with seminary. I wasn't getting student loans anymore. And it was like, okay, I got two babies and I, I better put some food on the table, you know, until we move and I have some income from starting this church. And so I got a very temporary job working at an oil refinery. And I was like, you know what? I can do anything for two months. I, I don't know anything about tools. I, I never took metal shop in high school, which was mind-blowing to all the guys that worked at the refinery. They're like, what? You never took metal shop? I'm like, no, man, I took like advanced English. And, and so I was like, this is really not the best use of my skill set, but I'll, I'll figure it out. I can do anything for two months. So I went out there and I did that. And you guys, it was awful. I mean, it was awful. I, I did not know what I was doing and I didn't have any friends. And there were people there that figured out very quickly that I didn't know what I was doing. And you wouldn't believe this, but they are not the nicest when you don't know what you're doing. In fact, they're really not that nice when you do know what you're doing. <laughs> but, but I was like, that's okay, that's okay. Me and God, I can do this. I can do anything for two months. And so Jen and I pitched our vision to the elder board of our Bellingham church who adored us. And we said, okay, we want to start a church and we're asking you guys to help us. And you guys, my pitch to them was so good. It was brilliant. Okay, check it out. Here's, here's the essence of it. I said, okay, you guys, for the cost of hiring just one more staff member, okay, which they already had like 18 or something, like one more staff member, what was I going to do for you? For the cost of adding one more full-time staff member, you, you can invest that salary in starting an entire church. And within three years, it could be self-supporting. There's like no other ministry that you could start that within three years would be self-supporting like that. I mean, think about how awesome that is. And we can move down there and there's all these people in that area and, and they need Jesus and they need community and they need grace and they need relationships and they need it all. This is going to be awesome. You're feeling it, aren't you? You're in, good. Yeah. Okay, but I followed the pitch at the board meeting by saying, okay, but don't make a decision right now. Just pray about it, and I want you to really think about it, 
And here's what I'll do. I will meet with each one of you individually over the next month. I'll take you out for lunch or dinner or coffee or whatever. And I want to I hear what you think and I want to answer any questions that you have. Then come back together next month and you guys make a decision. And I did. I met with each individual board member answering questions. And Jen, as she does, made all these beautiful charts and diagrams and timelines and everything. And they're like, wow. And I'm like, yeah. And it was impressive. And every single one of them, when I was meeting with them, got all jacked up. I mean, I'd spend like five minutes with them. And then the next hour would be them leaning over the table, telling me why this was awesome, telling me why this was brilliant, telling me why I was the right guy for it and Jen was the right woman for it and how successful this was all going to be. Which is why I had no doubt in my mind, the board is 100% behind us on this. This is happening. There's no way that they were going to say no, except that they said no. They all met again and talked about it, and it turned out the timing of this whole thing was really bad. They were in a season where they felt like our church is getting huge and we're going 50 million directions all at the same time. We're not doing anything particularly well, and we need to consolidate, do less, and do it better. We need to quit shotgunning all this stuff we're doing. We need to rifle this thing. And so they reached out after their decision, and they said, we just don't feel like God's calling us to take on a new project like this right now. We believe in you, we believe in the vision, but we can't do it. Suddenly, we didn't, have, we didn't have any of the financial support. And it was, you guys, it was devastating. I, I just did not see it coming. We had a great plan. But the support that I was sure we'd have, it just didn't materialize. And you guys, I was crushed. I mean, I was, I, I really, I was in shock. I was like, we'd been working for this for years. I was in shock and just depressed. And it was bad. I'm just moping around the house. And so after a few days, Jen said, knock it off, suck it up, dude, and put on your big boy pants. And she got online, actually, she's probably sweeter than that. She got online and she started searching around and there was this really cool new thing called the internet that I had just discovered. (laughs) And we found this denomination out there called the Christian Missionary Alliance and they were extremely serious about wanting to plant churches. And, And so we fired off an email and they got back to us And we found this beautiful new partnership that really has been amazing. But from that point, it took over a year to develop and cultivate the partnership. And so you guys, I ended up working in that refinery for over a year and a half. (laughs) It was hell. I I mean, what started off being a a two-month thing that, okay, God, I can do that. It turned into over 18 18 months. You guys, I did not want to be there. I hated it. I I was a fish out of water in that place. I didn't fit. All I wanted to be doing was starting a church, not doing construction. I wanted to build people, right? Not structures. I wanted to teach and counsel, not fit metal. But in that season, the most like magical thing happened. The people that I worked with every day just became special to me. And eventually, I got put on a consistent crew. When I first got out there, every day they would put me on a new crew. 
And I was just like strangers every day. And just like, it was, it was, I finally got on this, they put me on a crew and I stayed with those people and it made, it made all the difference in the world. One guy I, I worked with was a welder named Mike and he was just a big burly dude. And I remember right when I started on that crew, Mike and I got assigned this job for two weeks, just the two of us, and it was in a quiet part of the refinery, like off by the woods, where we could actually talk to each other and hear, because it wasn't so loud. And the more we were together for those two weeks, the more he just opened up. He just started telling me about his life, telling me about his kids, telling me about his wife, telling me about his dreams and his fears and, and his childhood and all of it. And pretty soon, he started asking me about me. And pretty soon... Very naturally, we started talking about Jesus, and pretty soon we started talking about church. Why? Because I'm a Bible thumper? No, because that was a big part of my life. And so it just came up naturally. And the interesting thing was he wanted to know more about it. He was super curious. And the next thing I knew, he was coming to church. I, I was guest preaching at a church in the Bellingham area, and he came to listen. And he came that day, and something hit him, and he got all fired up. And, and then when we got back to work, he's like, hey, man, let's have a little Bible study. I'm like, are you serious? He's like, heck, yeah. And I'm like, sweet, I'm in. Let's do this. And so Mike and I met together Wednesday mornings for like nine months at 5 a.m. in the morning at his house because we started work at 630. And so we had to meet at 5 a.m., which is ridiculously early. No one should be up that early. <laughs> And I, I just want to point out, I was not happy to be up that early, but it was very meaningful. And over time, I became friends with Mike and every other person on that crew. And for a season, for that season, we became a tight little unit. And man, the, the refinery, you guys, I cannot, it, the, the negativity that just enveloped that environment was so brutal, just harsh. And in a place like that, it's like nobody wants to be the butt of everybody's joke, so they're always looking for someone else to pick on and deflect. It's almost like kids sitting around a table in middle school. I mean, it's just unbelievable. But what I watched God do in that little group over the next year or so was that in our little pocket, it just over time was becoming less and less and less of that. And God was using me to influence a culture. People started to treat each other so much better, and I could feel it, and it was, it was really cool. And so Mike ended up inviting a bunch of other guys to our Bible study. I mean, we're out in the truck, and he's, somebody rolls down the window, like, what's up, Mike? And he was a cool guy. Everybody loved him. We're like, what's up, Mike? He's like, what's up? You should come to our Bible study. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, you guys, by the end of my time there, in, within nine months, we had like seven guys at this Bible study at five o'clock in the morning. And it was this crazy thing. And I'll tell you, this is what carried me through that season, was this sense of feeling like God is using me even in this season right now. I wanted to be starting a church, not doing this. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to be here. But, but God is actually, he has me here for a reason. And these people really matter to him, and I'm here for them. And I'm working with him to serve them and to love them. And looking back, I've been at Brookview for 18 years, you guys, but that was some of the deepest ministry that I've ever known. And it happened because I was the right person at the right time for a bunch of them. 
I mean, if you think about it, had I just been some strange pastor at some strange church in town, they would have had no interest in me whatsoever. It was only because I was wearing coveralls, and I was covered with black dust, and I had a hard hat on and, and eye protection and ear protection, just like they did. It was only because in that particular season, I was one of them. And so, for a short time, they let me into their lives in a deep way. But you guys, without them, without that, it would have been like the darkest season for me. Jen and I sometimes, we will talk about that season and just kind of smile. Um, one time we were talking about it and Jen said, you know, it kind of reminds me of the story of Esther. I'm like, really? A bunch of dudes in coveralls? Reminds you? She's like, yeah. You know the story of Esther. For such a time as this. Right, Esther is this, this humble and poor Jewish girl who, through crazy circumstances, becomes the queen of Persia. And she's like, I don't want to be the queen of Persia. And God's like, too bad, you're the queen of Persia, Esther. And she gets to be the queen of Persia, and God's like, and here's another thing, there's, there's going to be a problem. And the king orders an edict unbeknownst to him. He doesn't even know what's going on because he's kind of an idiot. She's married to this idiot who's the king of Persia. And he, 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 he passes an edict to have all of the Jewish people in his entire empire of Persia killed. I mean, he orders a mass genocide. And she's so high up, she doesn't even know what's going on. So her cousin, Mordecai, sends word to her about the crisis. And, and knowing that he and all of his people uh, have, uh, their, their days are numbered. And he says those famous words to her. For such a time as this. And who knows, he says, and who knows, but you have come to your royal position for such a time as this, right? And Esther saves hundreds of thousands of people because of the unique position that she was in. But those words are so powerful for such a time as this. And I just want to encourage you as we, we kind of wrap up this morning to think about your life. Because many of you are in a situation and it may be a situation, for some of you, it's not a big deal, but some of you, you're in a situation you don't want to be in. And I just want to say, what if your situation is not all that random? What, what if you are where you are for a reason? Whether things are great or they're really, really hard, what if you are where you are for just such a time as this? Some of you are facing some really, really tough stuff. And, and so, like, you can decide, I'm just going to wallow in it. But, but what if that tough stuff is actually giving you access to people in a unique way? I mean, what if there's really meaningful stuff for you to be doing right now? What if you are where you are for such a time as this? You may not be where you want to be. I, I, I didn't want to work in an oil refinery. Paul didn't want to be in prison. Esther didn't want to be queen married to an idiot. You, you may not much care for your circumstances, but what if you are where you are for just such a time as this? I mean, some of you guys are going through stuff that I, I can't possibly imagine. 
could be that someone that you love is hurting and you can't fix it and you can't take away the pain. Or maybe for you, a dream has died or a relationship has died or you just feel really stuck. You want something and as far as you can tell, it's really, really good and it's not happening. Like I can't imagine what you might be going through right now. I can't. And while a change in circumstance it may eventually come for some of you, and I hope it does. It may not. And so what then? Here's the only thing I know. Find a way to pour into whoever happens to actually be in front of you. Who, who are the people that you now have access to and how can you bring the goodness of God to them in some way? Because the more you focus on serving, on being a servant and not your circumstances, the more joy has the opportunity to just break through. And I have seen this again and again and again in my own life. But if you make happy the primary goal, it will keep eluding you. If you make meaning the goal, it's so weird how so often happy just comes with it. Now, I'm not telling you what's easy. Some of you might be like, you have no idea. I have no idea. I'm not telling you what's easy. I'm just telling you how life actually works. And it's this weird paradox. And yet, you have some say-so. Father in heaven, I thank you for I thank you for the example of Jesus. I thank you for the example of Paul, who show us what it looks like to live a life of meaning, who in spite of circumstances that were very painful and, and unjust and, and all of that, unjust, they, they found ways to pour themselves out. Jesus, you, you poured yourself out for the entire world and did the most meaningful thing that anyone could ever do. And I can't imagine the joy that you feel. And so as, as Christians, as, as little Christs, Jesus, would you help us to live like you, to become like you? And in our own situation, when things are not as we would have them be and not, not what they should be, would you help us to look around and figure out how to pour ourselves out and how to serve and love the people that are actually in front of us? Would you take our circumstances and in, in, the, in, in the cases where you, you can change the circumstance and make it better, God, please do that. But in the places where that's, that's just not going to happen, help us to see the meaning to see the meaning that is available by, by living a life in partnership with you to serve others wherever we are, wherever we go. And would you use our lives to do something beautiful in this world?